Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello, my name is Astrid Edwards and this is Anonymous Was a Woman. Today, I am joined by Sally Spicer from Future Women and the phenomenal Bree Lee. Bree Lee is an author and freelance writer. You will have read her journalism in The Monthly, The Saturday Paper and The Guardian. Her first book, Eggshell Skull, actually won the Biography of the Year, the People's Choice Award and the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and was longlisted for the Stella Prize back in 2019. Breedley's advocacy and her book, Eggshell Skull, have contributed to a change in consent laws in Australia. Her latest book, Who Gets to be Smart, Privilege, Power and Knowledge, is another extraordinary memoir and expose, this time focusing on education and that very, very important question, what barriers keep people out? Breedley, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. Thank you for having me. Congratulations are in order. Your book, Who Gets to be Smart, has just gone into its third reprint. Now, that is exceptional for any book, any nonfiction book published in Australia, but also one with so many events that have been cancelled for obvious reasons lately. Well done, Brie. Thank you. Yes, I feel very grateful that I did actually get to tour for two and a half weeks. Obviously, there are so many authors who just had their entire publicity schedules completely wiped out. And I at least got to meet several hundreds of sort of thousands of people in a few key cities. And then I think from here on in, we're just either moving things online. So I'll be talking in Hobart on Thursday evening and I'll be appearing digitally and the fantastic Heather Rose will be in Hobart in person. So like the other sort of lining is that now that we're so deep into the pandemic, people are much more used to digital stock gaps, prepared to, to engage in that way. Now, we don't have a theme this week on Anonymous Was a Woman. It's literally host pick. And we all chose your book, Brie, because loved it, but also think it's important. I suspect many people will have read or are aware of Who Gets to Be Smart. But now this book has been out for a little while in the world and people are obviously buying it. Can you tell us why you wrote it and what you are surprised at given your research, what you found. So it started back when my dear and brilliant friend Damien got named a Rhodes Scholar. So that was 2018. I went over to visit him in Oxford and sort of took a tour of Rhodes House, but also Oxford more generally. And really at that time in my life, I didn't have any words to try and articulate why I felt like finding out my friend was a Rhodes Scholar felt like getting kicked in the gut. And what I learned through huge amounts of research and three years of reading around and conversations was that essentially everything I'd been fed and told by school and university was that a Rhodes Scholarship was one of a very small number of possible apexes of intellectual achievement. And that if he got one, that meant he was a winner and I was a loser. But when I was there and I was very, you know, sort of like kid finally gets to go to Disneyland and just really enamored and, and in awe of this incredible place, because it is amazing, objective, like it's, it's incredible. It's so much money and, and it's the world's sort of oldest maintained bubble, all of that. But it also very quickly started making me feel a bit uneasy 
And I read for the first time ever, embarrassingly late in my life, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf when I was there. And in it, Woolf talks about many things that still really hold up almost 100 years later. And one of them is what she refers to as the streams of silver and gold. And that essentially money and privilege flows from certain people and very strategically through universities to other sort of small categories of people. And that that it's a, a place that compounds intergenerational wealth and intergenerational privilege. So that's what Wolf was talking about, you know, 90 something years ago. And, and what I was seeing around me was not that different. And so I came back from Oxford and I started asking questions about the stream of silver and gold here in Australia. And it just ballooned into a full length book because everywhere I turned, what I found was that, I mean, what I believe is that the education system should give all children and all young people an equal opportunity at life. And what I found was that in many ways it was compounding inequality. And the book goes in, I don't know what, eight different directions, because of course you can't ask a question like who gets to be smart without talking about science. You can't ask a question like who gets to be smart without talking about language. And so it does sort of, it's just, I I hope the reader would feel like it was like holding, they were holding my hand as I just like trundle through all of these things and try to decide for myself what I believe. And I suppose if I had to pick something that I was most surprised by it's almost impossible to do so because I feel myself to be radically altered after having undertaken this work to the point where it's been the case with all three of my books now. When I go back to edit chapter one or the earlier chapters, I'm cringing and feel quite embarrassed or awkward about the things I thought and felt at the beginning of the work. It is an exercise in controlling my ego to not try and take some sort of like omniscient, I always knew this stuff perspective, because what I think about the way we conflate intelligence, however we define intelligence, the way we conflate that with an individual's worth is truly insidious. Given all the research you've done, I would love, and I've been dying to ask you this question, in Australia, who gets to be smart? Yeah, that's like, I think my book does a better job of articulating who doesn't get the opportunity to be smart, because... If I had to pick a short way of answering that question, really what it would come down to is people who live in the right postcodes and people who have wealthy parents. And both of those things are essentially about wealth and privilege. And it's not a coincidence that Australia has the fourth most segregated by class schooling system out of all OECD nations, and also the fourth worst divide between rich and poor suburbs. And in terms of who gets to be smart, it's the same people as always, because it just comes back to honestly that stream of silver and gold flowing in the same direction and people being able to buy a leg up for their kids and systems that allow everyone else who can't afford that leg up to be left behind. I work in the vocational education part of university, which to be frank, is looked down upon because it doesn't have the fancy higher level degrees, but has traditionally been a path for people who maybe didn't get all of the access that one would hope in secondary school and it gets them into a pathway to university or further study and in different ways. 
I was really deeply disturbed and I remain deeply disturbed after reading Who Gets to Be Smart because you demonstrated to me that it is so much worse than I thought. And that's an uncomfortable feeling, Brie, but it's also a really necessary one because we all need to know this. But I guess I was so disturbed because you articulated the barriers that are there. So I knew who was left out, but I didn't really understand why. And I remain full of rage and I hope you can feel it in my voice at the barriers and why they're there. And one of the things that I will not be able to forget is your takedown of the Ramsey Center for Western Civilization. Can you please (laughs) explain to the audience the Ramsey Center? Yeah. Yeah. So I sort of should say I can acknowledge that in many ways it's an easy target. I consider it to be quite an extremist organisation. And so in that sense, you know, if you're writing or or making any kind of argument, you pick the furthest, most extreme example of something that's sort of easiest to take down. But the reason I felt like a almost forensic takedown of the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization was necessary was because they are so rich and so powerful and they keep getting bigger and keep doing whatever the fuck they want, apparently. So it seems like there's not yet been enough criticism. What they are, in a nutshell, is that there was this guy, very rich, super mega rich guy, who did give huge amounts of money to various philanthropic endeavours called Paul Ramsey. Paul Ramsey and Tony Abbott were friends. We now basically have to take Tony Abbott's word for the conversations that those two men had together when Mr. Ramsey was, I was going to say was convinced, but, you know, whatever, decided to put a huge amount of money towards essentially the way Tony Abbott describes it is an Australian equivalent of a Rhodes Scholarship. So Tony Abbott is a Rhodes Scholar. People who are fans of Tony Abbott and Tony Abbott himself love to remind everyone about that. He's very proud of Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes and the Rhodes legacy. And these are not sort of whisperings that I'm alleging. He wrote an article for Quadrant in which he makes comments such as perhaps not all cultures were created equal and that he's proud of the legacy of Rhodes. And he's delighted that he's got his very generous friend Ramsey to commit to these Ramsey scholarships and what they do is they give an extraordinary amount of money to a very small number of people and those are people who do a western civilization major now like it seems to me that the degree to which most people are familiar with the Ramsey's center if at all is because they were the latest thing in the culture wars for sort of six months or so while the program was being announced and while the ramsey center was trying to get a foothold at different universities and a bunch of universities said absolutely not because the ramsey center would have decisions over hiring and firing of staff and and sit on scholarship selection committees which is obviously just a gross infraction upon academic independence but The Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization is now at the University of Queensland, the University of Wollongong and the Australian Catholic University after they were very publicly rejected from Australian National University, ANU in Canberra and University of Sydney and I think perhaps a couple of others. The most telling thing about the way that sort of 
time in the Ramsey Centre's establishment rolled out was when the University of Sydney went away and did a whole bunch of alternative economic modelling and replied to the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization and said, we have done this maths whereby over a thousand students would benefit from your very generous millions of dollars instead of a couple of dozen. And the Ramsey Centre said, no, thank you, because they're not actually interested in knowledge sharing. They're not interested in trying to get lots of young people wonderful opportunities to give people access to these incredible institutions. They're interested in buying legacy. And now the Ramsey scholarships are available for postgraduate students as well. It's just a lot of their contracts with the universities are covered as commercial incompetence. So we can't you know, you can't find out what people are getting paid and how things are structured. And they definitely, like a Ramsey Centre representative, is on a board when you're applying for a scholarship. And a huge percentage of the board are conservative politicians, current or former. <laughs> it's truly shocking. You know, it was, I was relieved when ANU and University of Sydney rejected them, but it's still deeply concerning that three other universities so far at least have accepted them. And they're just really, really, I, the writings at least of Tony Abbott himself, and then also to a lesser extent, Simon Haynes, who is one of the other sort of head honchos of the organization, very much either explicitly or implicitly promote Western civilization as superior. And it's just so deeply not okay. It needed to be torn apart. It is not okay. And I remain incredibly impressed at how you tore it apart. I have a question though about what it feels like for you. This is your third book and you explicitly point out the flaws in one of our former prime ministers, well, a couple of our former prime ministers, but particularly Abbott. And he's a vocal guy. How do you feel? I mean, I don't know how I would feel in your situation. And I'm genuinely interested where you put that on the list of being exposed in public. I think it's clear to me with even a bit of hindsight that the aftermath of publishing Eggshell Skull was sort of a trial by fire in both extremes of the sort of publicity spectrum. There are now people I have never met who think that I have changed their lives after having read my book and have written to me countless people about how they have changed their lives after reading that book. And it's sort of the best possible thing an author could ever hope for. There are also countless people I've never met who fucking hate me, who really think that I am... I mean, you could just like pick from any 12 awful, varying (laughs) negative adjectives. You know, people who think that I'm don't know what I'm talking about and I'm doing it for attention. The people who think that I'm stupid or uh, arrogant, people who think that I'm just like a troublemaking little upstart bitch, like whatever. There are I don't know how many people out in the world who think truly awful things about me that was a difficult process to go through in sort of 2018, 2019. It was made more painful by that also being a time when I was trying to get consent law reform happening and being very viciously personally attacked, despite from my perspective, me trying to critique and attack a system, receiving personal hatred in response. 
But what it clarified in me, which I am now very grateful for, is that I can count on sort of two hands, the people whose opinions I really, truly trust and really, truly value. And if I try to bend my moral compass or my artistic work to anyone else's opinions, it will be diluted to the point of being ineffective and probably just shit. And so what it comes down to is making sure that I am always incredibly responsive and porous to the feedback of the people who I do trust and completely ignoring <laughs> of other feedback. And so it's kind of, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I've totally figured it out, but just how brutal things were like dealing with eggshell skull. Yeah. It's just provided me with a kind of clarity around my thoughts and feelings about even reviews, let alone DMS, or if I got attacked by a public figure, Oh, well, it's not one of my 10 people. That is an excellent answer, Brie. <laughs> That's the most articulate way I've ever heard anyone say, screw the haters, to be honest. <laughs> it's a good way to live. Thank you. <laughs> so when you look at the cover of this and the name of this, which is Who Gets to Be Smart, fundamentally you have all of these Anglo-centric privileged perceptions of what smart looks like, which is something that you do tackle in the book. And one of the sort of the hallmarks of smartness historically has been the, I suppose, the archetypal man who is middle-aged, he's objective, he's not emotional. I would be really interested to hear your thoughts, especially in the context of what you've just shared with us and the emotional rigor and the emotional labor that putting something like your book eggshell skull out into the world how do you decide when to distill what you're putting out into the world into research and facts and how do you decide how much anger you want to put into your work which is fundamentally it is all data-based it is empirical but there is a really important and valid and necessary level of anger there which is something that I've really always admired in your work how do you decide if it is a conscious decision, when to allow yourself to inject that anger into your work? That's a really good question. I will say there's typically in the sort of first 10 drafts, a lot more swear words, a lot more exclamation points. If you ever feel like I've sort of pushed the envelope and I'm a bit too angry, guaranteed in the first 10 drafts, it was way worse. Ultimately, with Who Gets To Me Smart in particular, a huge amount of the writing is rewriting and just combing, what I refer to as combing, just going from the top again, printing it out in hard copy, red pen in hand, and trying to leave gaps between each process of combing so that I have some kind of level of fresh eyeballs on it. And thinking of the reader, thinking about when I am expecting them to be able to draw their own conclusions and trying to be selective about the things that do genuinely give me an almost uncontrollable emotional response and only in those places really inserting myself into the process. A bigger answer to this question that I think is also really important is something I've just learned from being a reader for many more years now, which is that I don't really trust books that are about sort of high stakes nonfiction, any kind of issues-based nonfiction that take that kind of objective, invisible narrator, omniscient 
position. Because if you're talking about a high stakes issue and I don't know who you are and what your angle is, how am I going to know what your blind spots might be? How am I going to know what your strengths and weaknesses might be? And so for me, what I hope the effect is of putting a book like this in first person and making sure I don't over-edit the early chapters when I did think and feel different things is that I can hold a reader's hand, they can come on this journey with me, they can understand like the lens through which I am seeing the issues and they are then better placed to choose what of my monologue they accept or reject because they can see both the information and the lens through which it is being delivered to them. And especially a book that is about so many different types of privilege and being very aware that obviously I come from inside that world of in particular academic privilege in many ways. I just think it's the only way to do it. Well, certainly I wouldn't undertake a project like this without that acknowledgement of my own subjectivity being present in both the form and the content. Brie, after Eggshell Skull, you did go on and you were a public advocate for a change of the law. Well done. In no way do I want to suggest you have to go on and publicly advocate now that you have written this book. This book stands alone, but I am interested for the listeners and for myself, actually, if we wanted to take this further, kind of where do we start? That is a really great question. And I actually have a specific answer for you. Excellent. And I wouldn't have, yeah, I wouldn't have on the 1st of June when I started touring, but once I started having any conversations with any people about this book, whether sort of launch event conversations or like conversations with readers in my DMs or conversations with for media, early childhood education, done, bam. That would be my single absolute choice. So there are a lot of things in this book that made me mad. The thing that made me most sad was that one in five five five-year-olds start grade one not being able to meet their developmental milestones. And those children, because these are children, they're not consumers, they're not voters, they're children, are overwhelmingly from family backgrounds who then don't have the resources to be able to just send their kid to extraordinarily resourced primary or secondary schools so that they can try and catch up on being on the back foot. And so there's only really one line in the entirety of who gets to be smart that mentions that, but people kept asking, well, like, where do we start? And it would be acknowledging that in the same way we thank goodness think that all children in Australia from the age of five and up have a right to an education for free. And we can argue, and and I do, about the inequality in that education being provided. But fundamentally, we acknowledge that essentially Australia is rich enough that we have a duty and a moral obligation to give every child a free education. But for whatever reason, if you're four and under, it's called welfare and we call it childcare. I mean, I think a huge, the two main components of that, um, one is that we think mums should raise their babies and all of the the huge amount of just cultural baggage that needs to be unpacked there. And two, we just have a really outdated image of there being a difference between play and learning, which all of the research we have about early childhood development sort of debunks. And so 
I'll be working on a huge essay for Griffith Review about specifically early childhood education. And I've just had a Zoom last week with um, one of the people who heads up a campaign, an organisation called Thrive by Five, which is all about a lot of different components to a campaign arguing for the same thing, which is universal early childhood education. And as much of a raging feminist as I am, it's been very frustrating to see this debate happening publicly around child care being good for women. I really think that it's a mistake to frame the arguments in that way. I think a much stronger and more important position to take is that every young person in Australia has a right to a universal early childhood education. And if parents in particular, we know mothers are better able to return to work as a happy byproduct, then fantastic. But at the moment, I'm, what I'm actually thinking about is 20% of four-year-olds having their potential limited by economic policy. My goodness. <laughs> so, yes, I did have an answer to that. <laughs> Thank you, Astrid. <laughs> Thank you for your answer, Bree. And now everyone listening, let's go and keep an eye out for Bree's essay in Griffith Review. Yeah, that'll be out early next year, I should say. It's for their education issue. And also the thing you can do immediately is to stop calling it childcare and start referring to it as early childhood education because the other flow-on effect of that is that we really disrespect and denigrate early childhood workers as though we are not willing to acknowledge what they do is any more complex than babysitting. And of course, that is also gendered and a huge part of the problem with the way that industry and area is sort of funded and understood. Bree, as always, you have given us so much to think about. My personal thanks. I greatly enjoyed your book and I'm looking forward to everything that you do next. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you, Astrid. That's very kind of you. And this was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us again for another interview on Anonymous Was a Woman. We will be back with Jamila Rizvi on Monday. Our topic for next week is tomorrow and what comes next. Thank you, as always, to Hachette Publishing and Future Women for making this podcast possible. 